0: What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you another look at what's going on in pop culture this week. My name is Pat Sheehan, joined by a man who thinks that everybody is a sexy baby and he's the monster on the hill. Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, what's going on, man?
1: (laughs) I don't even remember what that's a reference to, but I'm sure I heard it recently.
0: Come on. Midnight's is here. 3 a.m. is here. You kidding me?
1: uh no i I didn't, I didn't recognize that one to okay. be honest but and very exciting went. very exciting uh record for sure taylor swift just when uh the world needed her most she's back <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes <laughs> the world need, needed to heal and taylor's bringing the healing with uh a return to i guess like kind of form we'll, we'll be talking about it uh we also have a couple other albums as well as some movies and uh big television show to talk about today so hit that subscribe on youtube.com slash now but dave for those who are watching on youtube they'll see that telly swift is not behind us right now we're talking carly ray jepson another huge pop drop this past weekend and boy uh we haven't talked about carly ray in a couple of years and last time we did i think we really enjoyed what we got for the most part you know i think one of the like when you think about that era of like late 2000s female young pop stars in my mind there's three that i kind of lumped together it's like charlie xcx Carly ray jepson and rebecca black for some reason i think because they all kind of felt like they came up with these songs that like people didn't actually expect them to like success rebecca black obviously did not although she's having a great tiktok revival yeah but carly ray and charlie xcx both have over the last decade into this new decade really come into form and found this groove for themselves where they are just fully formed artists and i think that continues on the loneliest time because i while i think there's some parts of this record that i found a bit redundant maybe not her best work there's some moments i felt were pretty inspired i really enjoyed how did you feel about this new record
1: yeah i liked it quite a bit um tough luck for Carly Rae dropping the same day as Taylor. She had the date first, alas, when you're she as big as down. when you're as big as Taylor, you don't really pay attention to other people's dates, obviously. Uh, nonetheless, though, I would have to imagine the loneliest time will be pleasing to Carly Rae's uh, ro- loyal fan base. She's not the biggest pop star in the world, but she is quite successful and quite popular uh, in her own regard. And like you said, it's kind of been a long time coming and I think going into this, I don't know if I had, like, strong expectations because, truthfully, I didn't really care for that first lead single back in May, Western Wind. bit bit too folky for me. I'm like, that's just not, like, what I associate with Carly Rae, even if, like, the writing might be there. Just, like, the sounds, not what I'm thinking of. But, like, if we're being honest, she's been on the 80s wave longer than most in terms of pop music these days. So... It's kind of cool to hear new music from her as other people are kind of jumping on the bandwagon as we discuss ad nauseum whenever new music comes out. And she's also kind of proven that she's a bit out of the ordinary when pop because the last two albums have uh, featured these very distinct like side B companion albums with both emotion and dedicated getting a side B after the original release and now I'm like, hmm, does Loneliest Time necessarily need a side B? I don't think so. I think this mm-hmm. was pretty good on its own and uh, just had a lot of, I think, really enjoyable songs. I think Carly Rae has really found herself as a writer and a performer and just really kind of glides on a lot of this production that she's been writing for some time. Probably doesn't reinvent the wheel for Carly Ray Jepsen fans, but... In terms of like not the most popular pop artist that all pop scene, like I think she's obviously continuing to prove herself, and this was a success.
0: Yeah, I think I think it, this was definitely a success. You know, you mentioned that like '80s sound and how Western Wind, the first single, this really is a departure. But I think I think for that reason, I actually really enjoyed Western Wind. Um, I don't think when she tries different things on this, she necessarily. Uh, is very successful you know a song to me like beach house is a song that i just found to be like uh you know good try good effort but not totally my like my jam (laughs) uh but there's songs like like talking to yourself right Mm. or like you go a little bit further and you get like bad thing twice and she can just like churn out these like bubblegum eighties pop hits like so easily and it just kind of feels like she has that formula down and so seeing when she branched out on this i would my ears perked out up a little bit more and so you you mentioned western wind which kind of takes like the the first my first thought when that song started was the freedom ninety nine drums from um uh george michael and then you know you kind of bring in like a more like toned back almost like toto feel at times like it's it's an interesting song but i really do enjoy it and then another track like that that stood out was go find yourself or whatever like a pure emotional ballad and i think she just like crushes that i think her vocal performance on that is great but then if you just want to like go and get your harley ray fix there's plenty of just 80s pop songs on here like her and pooth could be turning this shit out like nothing man like <laughs> seriously just give us an album of a year of this it's great What what did you like about it
1: Uh, yeah, I think that's all right. I thought talking to yourself in particular, like the drums and that's awesome. That's just a banger from Carly Rae. Great song. Uh, I like Joshua Tree a lot. Uh, Shout out the bass line there. Nice guitar riffs. Just really kind of fits the vibe she often goes for. And in the song before that, the first song, Surrender My Heart. Yeah. I really enjoy the chorus on that song and the way really the song builds up to that chorus really kind of pumps you up. I thought the Beach House chorus was actually pretty fun. But I have seen a lot of people have been deriding it, which I get. But uh, yeah, I think just generally like when she's on like the more upbeat side of things, she's just really, really solid all the time. And, you know, once in a while, there's like true like masterpiece. Like I think of some of her past singles, like uh, Cut to the Feeling, for example. Like she's like obviously very talented and uh, really cool to see someone who Obviously found massive success 10 years ago with the best-selling song of 2012, Call Me Maybe, everybody knows, but then didn't find that immediate, like, mainstream success in the immediate wake of of Call Me Maybe, in the immediate wake of that, like, busting-on-the-scene moment. Mm-hmm. To see how far she's come and the kind of loyal cult-like fan base that she has not only developed but sustained for several years at this point, just really cool. Hats off to her
0: yeah completely i i I love seeing her success um she's she's really fun I think artists just to follow and um if if you wrote her off after call me maybe uh you have a lot to dive into and really enjoy now so really highly suggest it and i i suggest the loneliest time as a listen for those that are tuning in but we're not going to get to Taylor quite yet because there's there was another big album drop the Arctic monkeys uh you know when when we talk about Rock acts, they are one of the premier rock acts that is probably going to be headlining a lot this coming year. They have a, a world tour set, or I should say a European and a Amer- North American tour, not a world tour quite yet. But, um, it's interesting because last time we talked about them was four years ago when they released Tranquility Base Hotel and Casino a uh, bit of a departure from what we typically know about the Arctic monkeys <laughs> a month. bit. Going from being this rock, punk rock type sound into a more uh, jazz lounge band. Yeah, uh,
1: lounge singer.
0: And it it was, I think, very uh, mixed reception for <laughs> Tranquility Base Hotel and Casino. Uh, I did see them live after that, and they still fucking crush it. They're fantastic live, but you can tell that the people there are all waiting for them to you know bust out the guitars and really tear the place down and when they go into the more like jazzy lounge sound it's not as well received or people aren't really there for that so then we're getting the car four years later and uh we're, we're still doing the lounge thing Dave but so did the car work for you this time or what <laughs> was it just kind of like ah go back to were in the guitars around, boys.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I really do respect that Alex Turner and the guys are just just down to pick up where they left off. <laughs> they don't give a flying fuck about what people said last time. This is what they're feeling these days. I respect the shit out of that because it's in the face of Arctic Monkeys right now doing almost thirty-eight million monthly listeners on Spotify because AM is one of the biggest and most enduring rock albums of the last 10 years. Yep. And do I want to know, you know, almost 1.5 billion streams. A massive track, probably like the signature rock song of that same time period or at least, you know, right up there. Yeah. And they they just they're just not interested in that anymore. And of course they had made many albums to this point. This is the 7th, so five albums of one thing two albums of this new thing like i said i respect it is this what i would like to hear no honestly i like the older stuff better that's just in line with what i'm into but this is like pretty like impressively made music in terms of the sounds and the layers of instruments and the uh, approach to making all these songs it's just not my favorite thing at all which is kind of in line with what what some people said about the last time around, so in a sense, not a lot has changed. Yeah, I mean, this
0: is a complete like Alex Turner vehicle. <laughs> it's like it's almost hard to like call it a monkey's record, but I guess it, as Turner goes, so go the monkey. the are two monkeys at this point. Um,
1: to that point, he actually like recorded and like developed most of this music by himself, and then brought the band in to do the real recordings. And yeah you know audible from there but so yeah very much his, his uh creation
0: yeah and it's you know they have a couple of collaborators particularly james ford is someone that they've worked with a lot he's all over the production on this which makes a lot of sense um i, I gotta say i liked this more than tranquil tranquility base hotel and casino um like you said i think this is like a gorgeous album and just in terms of like how it sounds i think it's the sort of thing where you know, if this was a different band, I would probably look at it and be like, man, this is really, really solid and like amazing. But you just know that they could still turn out just a great rock album if they wanted to. But like you said, Turner's just not interested in that right now. And so we, we get this loungy album, but there's a lot of strings in this one. There's a lot more lush production. It's, it's a little funkier at times. And, I dug this a lot. I'm not going to lie. Um, I think there's some moments that are very like hit or miss. And to be honest, a lot of the lyrics, I don't get it all. Like a lot of it is just like, it sounds like mumbo jumbo nonsense at times. And it's hard to follow, but you just have Alex Turner with these, like, like these falsetto to like crooning the whole time. And then these like beautifully arranged string Uh, sections you have a couple of great guitar solos you have some really funky like uh guitar riffs and bass lines and it's like there's so much here to like um the more i've listened to it the more i've enjoyed it but you know like you said almost 10 years ago we got am and it's like man they could just put out one of these rock albums that people will just love and i would i hope they go back to it at some point because i i do miss hearing those monkeys but with that said i mean what were the songs that you found yourself enjoying the most
1: uh yeah, there were two songs that I that stood out to me the most. One would be the first song. There'd better be a mirror ball. The first thing, just yeah, the piano on that, especially the way it like like hits in like succession towards the beginning, very much reminded me of like a like a movie drop or something like mm. like a a needle drop in, in, in a film. Thought that was really cool. And then uh the other one I really dug was Hello You. Ooh. Just the bass, the keys, the strings as well, like just some of the best m- musical playing to me on the listen. But yeah, I think it's it's all really pleasant and all sounds really great. So you just I think you just have to be in the right headspace to listen to Alex Turner just do the lounge singer thing again.
0: Yeah. Uh, I will say he can pull the lounge singer singer thing off. He's like one of those front men that is like a true frontman when you go see him and like women around you are like losing their fucking minds um but yeah you know what i really like about hello you is the the baseline like you said but matched with the bongos like the whole time it's just like as this really like 70s feel to it which is great um and yeah there'd be a mirror ball i think it's probably the most beautifully written song that they have on on here just like the as a as a whole the song really works for me but man i i like the next song i ain't quite where i think i am the second one that guitar riff wow 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 like the wah-wah on it just is so funky i really love that and it's such a change-up from the first song it really like kind of pulled me out of this like trance that uh, mirrorball kind of puts you in a few songs later jet skis on the moat is so ridiculous (laughs) even just thinking about the song um But he's kind of getting into his Isaac Hayes here, right? Even in like delivery and like tune, it's very like that period. And that's followed up by Body paint, which I think is probably my favorite song here. He has that line, you know, "If if you're thinking of me, I'm thinking of you too. Like, that's kind of like the epitome of the song, just kind of setting that whole moment up, but it's really well done. I think that one also has like my favorite like build up to the end, like the end, like the guitar is just really like Worrying and get more of like a classic feel to it, and yeah, I mean, I I, I don't know if I, there's a song this record that I like don't like, but there's a few on the back half that I found a bit less um, engaging. Mister Schwartz was one I didn't really dig that much, um and Big Ideas I was I didn't find myself going back to all too much, but also a beautiful string arrangement for that. There, there's a lot to like here, and like you said, there, you got to respect them at least committing to the bit if nothing else. So um i'd say check this out but i mean not very commercial like this is not something like someone clicking through spotify is gonna like click on like the average person's gonna be like oh man check out this album you know
1: yeah one of my first thoughts was not that the music is actually that similar but just kind of the approach to the musical playing and the lack of commercial viability it reminded me a lot of the Father John Misty album we got earlier this year, Chloe oh, in the next yeah. 20th century. It's like, oh, yeah, you just you just did one for you with that.
0: <laughs> Although More I power to say, you. I will say, uh, in the UK, it's battling for number one with Midnights. On yeah, 100,000
1: so. plus in the UK. Very impressive, for sure. Arctic Obviously, Monkeys. Midnight's much bigger in the US. But yeah, Arctic Monkeys, uh, it shouldn't come as a shock that they have Built in like real fan base that's still gonna show up for something that's not as broadly popular as all the AM hits that have now, you know, sustained themselves on streaming.
0: Definitely. Uh, well, we're gonna put a song from there onto our now such best of twenty twenty two playlist on Spotify, so check that out. And we'll also have a Taylor Swift song from Midnight's because Taylor Swift is back, finally. We, uh, we needed her, you know? We haven't gotten enough Taylor Swift in the last couple of years, have we, Dave?
1: You know, I'm just happy she's not doing any re-recordings of music she already made. How nice to get new Taylor Swift music. It's a much more creatively fulfilling thing to consume to me than hearing the Taylor's versions. Now, the record sales for the Taylor's versions and the All Too Well redux would disagree. But that's just for me. I think this is a better use of her talents. The 10th Taylor Swift uh, album, Midnight's.
0: And Midnight's, we've known, is coming for quite a bit. Taylor announced this, I think it was about two months ago now? Back in August, I think? Yep.
1: You know what this means? The traditional album rollout is back and here to stay. Both Beyonce and Taylor Swift, two of the most famous purveyors of the surprise album drop, both did traditional album rollouts this year to great success. Taylor Swift, of course, per Hits Daily Double on track, 1.4 to 1.6 million first week sales, which is going to be around the fifth best-selling album week of all time in the United States, and of course the first by a wide margin to do this in the streaming era. Talk about a crazy success, but Taylor like, really built this up, hyped this up to her fans and just broadly to the world for an extended period of time, as you said. This is a huge departure from the last time around with full Folklore, especially, and also Evermore, which came with very limited notice and few, if any, singles. So it's Taylor really going back to the well in terms of the pop machine, and also sonically back more towards what we'd associate pre-2020 from her. And obviously, it's very exciting, and you, it's definitely uh, working, because this album is all over the place right now
0: all over the place did you find yourself enjoying this album as much as you expected to because i think when i when i heard we're getting like a taylor album with with jack at the helm you know co-wrote all the songs with
1: her somehow more jack antonoff with taylor swift than ever before i did not know that was possible (laughs) but technically that is actually the case this time around with midnights
0: and i i i was kind of like oh man here we go back back to like lover form here like this is gonna be a fucking bop and you know i didn't find myself like loving everything we got here i i definitely think there's some really great moments but i i don't think the highs are as high as on some of her other original songs Mm -hmm. or i guess like uh pop songs did you feel that way
1: yeah i know i think that's right and if you listen to midnights like most of the world has at this point it is intentionally a bit pared back specifically taylor's vocals are reined in on this one and i couldn't help but just immediately go back to delicate on reputation the very beginning of that song with the vocoder effects very famous of course it's featured in the miss americana doc I was really happy to see the Pitchwork Review call out this song as well. That whole, like, sonic idea of the way Delicate starts from Reputation, I feel like they, her and Jack just applied that to all of these songs, more or less. <laughs> and I like that song. I think that song's pretty catchy, especially that moment. Yeah. And I get what they were doing here. But the Taylor vocals are, like, are, are reined in. And I think sonically with this uh, as a pop Taylor release, it doesn't really go anywhere she hasn't gone before. And really comes across as a companion piece to Lover. But I think Lover, which I liked a lot, we definitely really liked as a corrective to Reputation when it came out oh, in 2019. Yeah. Lover is just a bit more expansive. and just has bigger, higher highs. Whereas Midnight's, perhaps as the album title suggests, feels much more reined in and moody. And, you know, I think maybe the Taylor Heads, the Swifties would really have to decide, like, is Taylor at her apex writing bag here because I think it's kind of interesting lyrically where she's bringing in the, the lover approach to the music again, leaving behind the folklore and evermore Sonics. But lyrically, it reminds me a lot of reputation at times where she's kind of like interrogating the idea of Taylor Swift, the persona of Taylor Swift, that celebrity, that, that piece on the mantle, that, Taylor has propped up for her own career sake, but also many of her fans have done as well. And it's kind of interesting to hear all these different influences from Taylor's past coming through on Midnight's, but I don't know if there's like the bops per se for yeah. that you expect from pop Taylor, you know. There's definitely a lot of highlights, but it's 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 quite interesting.
0: Yeah, I wonder if there's a a part of this where you like chalk it up to the concept of the album being these like songs that Taylor wrote when she couldn't sleep at midnight which you know just I think intrinsically there they'd be a little sleepier a little quieter mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely think it means that there's something missing a little bit at least for me in terms of the like energy that comes across I I completely agree with what you were talking about with reputation I think there's moments on this where I feel like she took the evermore sessions and almost like applied some of that to reputation and like had a baby with it (laughs) and it it, like worked in some really great ways. Cause I think, I I think her pen is still really strong on this. I don't think anyone writes songs the way that she does. And that's just like why she's a singular talent for this generation. Um, But I think also at times it comes across as like, I don't know. uh, Like i just found myself finding this a bit like, like a step back in a way, you know, like something like vigilante shit. I just was like, what are we doing here? Like, what am I listening to right now? It's like Taylor Swift goes Batman. Like what is the
1: addendum on? to the Scooter Braun feud vigilante yeah. shit? Um,
0: You know, I, there, there, there's I, some
1: there's some pretty good like strays, not really strays, on. straight up bullets fired at, at Scooter referencing. Uh things about him i i appreciate that that's that's all in in good fun and she's of course very justified in firing oh, totally. those shots as we know we've detailed before um yeah no i i think you're right um and that this is why i think her wasting a whole year of her career on re-recordings is so disappointing because this is the 10th taylor swift album midnights and crazy, you know man. what it's still pretty good as far as 10th albums go but you know what would be cool if that 10th album came out last year and we're getting the 11th album this year you know like it's okay to have not everything be a 10 when you're this deep into your career but let's also not like waste our time with stuff that's not creatively fulfilling at all you know like i'm just not invested in taylor swift like getting the maximum amount of money out of her music publishing. She's super successful. I don't give a shit about that. You know, other artists, it, it matters more. But like, yeah, cool. Taylor Swift, you've owned like, actually the last like four records now. Like, we don't really care about that anymore. Let's mm-hmm. let's get back to making real music again. <laughs> and she did with this. And yeah. like you said, it is kind of interesting that it's like a concept record. And it, it I can't help also, but reflect on... What is the Taylor Swift concert tour, stadium tour coming up, unannounced still, but coming up going to be? Let's not forget, she's never toured Lover. The Lover tour got canceled due to COVID. So she hasn't toured Lover or Midnights, which are the most stadium live friendly music she's made. And of course, she hasn't toured Folklore Evermore, which were designed with that not in mind at all, of course, live performance. So I wonder, like, what, what that mix is, is going to be now internally. Like, how does she view this music of hers? Because I think if you look at it in the macro view, as we've been saying, it does kind of feel like lesser material of a similar approach, but it's kind of like more modernized uh, per all the things that have happened in her life to this point. Like, it, it, there's still a lot going into it. But yeah, it's a, it, it's quite the interesting situation. And it's kind of funny that this of all the Taylor records, this is the one that is her best selling yet first week, yeah. you know? I mean, I, I I think this speaks
0: more to who Taylor Swift is the, as an artist in the public eye at this point. I mean, she announces a record and her fans are literally like rabid on the internet. I mean, she dropped this announcement and she was she dropped like the I don't know, teaser to it on Thursday Night Football pretty sure it like broke thursday night football like viewing records because of that and it immediately goes onto the internet Happy people Amazon. are pulling apart the, the teaser yep. and like looking for clues building this like this lore around it and it's like Taylor swift has grown beyond just being an artist but like there's this whole like other side where there's like hints and clues and connections that like swifties are able to find that you you just never do and it it's a credit to her for being this like Brilliant artist that can tie all these things together and make these connections, but so so much of it now is just manufactured because mm-hmm. Swifties are fucking thirsty for this shit. It's yeah. it's great, but it's also like she's just it's it's not just Taylor as an artist; Taylor as like a a character, and it's right. uh, pretty fascinating.
1: And, and that's why I, I do appreciate that she's kind of modernized or, or brought back up the Reputation lyrics, where the idea of of Taylor, which as you said, is so important in real life in terms of how her fans interact with her and her career it's cool to hear that again in the music you know we liked folklore and evermore for being like kind of a lyrical uh new road like down this new cul-de-sac where taylor's actually like writing not about herself really for the first time and kind of making more like conceptual records and like, you know, the, the great American dynasty, you know, that, that not, not, we never heard something like that before from Taylor Swift. Now she's brought it back to the, you know, the good old days, the, the bread and butter of Taylor Swift, as you will. But that's really where, where she made her name, of course, and, and her, and her legion of fans. So I guess it can't be too uh, surprising, but yeah, I mean, despite all these, so, some misgivings, I think there's still plenty of highlights and there will be hits. On this, yeah. even if these songs are not designed to be as big as some of her past hits i
0: uh, I think this album is one of the most like self loathing you know that you get from her, and that that kind of <laughs> starts with the uh the single uh anti hero the third yep. track on the album, which is the lo- the sexy baby line I was telling you about um <laughs> i mean the the whole chorus to that is is like so taylor swift but obviously is going i think it's going to be one of the most memorable songs from this you know hmm. i'm the problem it's me hi i'm the problem you know like
1: <laughs> rooting for the anti-hero
0: <laughs> yep it must be was it so like uh, i don't even know what the line is it must be so something rooting for the anti-hero i was like man taylor like you're really going in on yourself here and then she has the whole like fantasy about you know being killed by her daughter-in-law in the future and <laughs> very like I I think it's a really well well written song and a fun song, which is nice because I don't know how many of these songs I found to be like super fun in reading through. I mean, like I, I think the first I think the first three are all pretty good. You yep, get to snow on the totally. beach with Lana. I'm not like big on that one. I don't know. How, what was your temperature on that?
1: I mean, yeah, it's kind of a hyped up uh, collab. Collab, you know, Del Ray, of course, in her own regard. Fabled American songwriter of recent times, and yet, you know, I feel like that song almost would have fit better on one of the recent Lana albums. You know, like mm. Chemtrails or Blue Banisters or something. You know, yeah. where it sounded. But uh, the way it, Lana kind of comes in at the end and Taylor's faded out on the song, it's all right. You know, um, but, but I guess maybe better than I expected. But I think coming off that first three, you know, Lavender Haze, Maroon antihero I think that's a really strong start yep. and right off the bat with Lav- Lavender Haze, you have like just some like classic like Jack Antonoff ass touches like mm-hmm. that damned if you do like vocal tick from Taylor on Lavender Haze. This felt like classic Jack to me and yeah fu- funny that <laughs> they somehow found a way to be even more creatively entwined uh, yeah. on an album I again like I made the joke but I really didn't think that she would want to go down that road even further, you know, just for her own creative juices. But no, they, they really seem to just thrive together. It seems, or just love working together.
0: Yeah. And somehow Desner uh, phased out of this. He's on a lot of the, uh, the 3am edition tracks, but yep. I was like surprised to not see him more involved in this. I guess he gets to a couple more productions too, but I don't know. Interesting. Um, yeah. What other, what other songs, uh, stood out to you or did you, Yourself
1: enjoying, yeah. I really liked Question. I, I just yeah. thought the lyrics from Taylor were really strong there. The, the vocal breakdown is really fun. Uh, with Vigilante, shit, I did really enjoy the chorus. Um, Midnight Rain, I liked. I thought Bejeweled was pretty catchy. Um, you know, there, there's myriad bonus tracks too, very reminiscent of early Taylor uh, album releases. Some of those I think are a bit more up and down, but I thought uh, Glitch was probably one of the more interesting ones because it sounds a bit like a sonic road she hasn't really gone down before like we said most of Midnight's is familiar from the music making perspective for the most part so it is cool that some of those bonus tracks maybe stand out a little bit as like oh we only heard Taylor do something like this before Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah I think like you said Any Hero is the big hit for sure just in terms of like it's not as big as her other big hits but like it has those trademark like lyrics that her fans have found relatable for 15 years
0: yeah i i completely agree and i think that there's I, I think there's a couple of other songs that really stood out to me mastermind the last track i thought was really strong maybe some of her best writing on this um i agree with you on question another one that stood out
1: did you listen to the bonus tracks i listened to some of them on youtube there's actually quite a lot because there's like the 3m edition and there's that other yeah. i think it's a target only the one again yep classic yeah, Earth. which is
0: just two remixes and then one original. Um, but yeah, the the 3AM one was the one that I listened to on Spotify. And actually, one of my favorite songs out of all of these, actually, there's two of them, but Would Have, Could Have, Should Have, I thought was a really strong bonus track. Um, really just enjoyed the like energy to that, which I wish I just made it onto the regular one because it, it's such a fun song. Um, and then High F- Infidelity, I thought was like a clever twist to high fidelity you know they kind of use that as like a mm-hmm. framing device and i was like oh that's that's pretty clever and of course she writes really well around it so it, it helps but is she still with the guy from uh not normal people i can't remember yeah, it kind of
1: Conversations with friends own yeah. joe alwyn <laughs> yeah yes she is in fact on sweet nothing joe alwyn is a credited songwriter under his uh pseudonym william bowery oh boy Shout out their love. It seems to be real. Seems to be for
0: sure. Uh, <laughs> ha- happy for them. Um, yeah, I mean, what what are we supposed to make of Taylor Swift at this point? She's just like the biggest star in the like star in the world.
1: I mean, the data would would support that at this yeah. current time, or you know, at least top three, top five. Um, depends where you are in the world, maybe. But sets the Spotify first day album record: one hundred eighty six million, a healthy thirty million. Higher than certified lover boy the previous high mark oh, uh Christ four hundred thousand vinyl records sold on the first day, which happens to double the previous single week record in one day, as we said, one point four to one point six million first week, you're looking at fifth or seventh best week ever, depending on where in that range it falls, hundred thousand plus in the u k the same time I mean. going into this she was like seventh in monthly listeners on spotify with no original new music out in what over almost two years like yeah she's really never been bigger and you have to imagine when she finally goes on a lover midnight's folklore more tour it'll be the highest earner of the year you'd have to imagine crazy i
0: mean i mean she definitely deserves it uh an artist that is you know unrivaled at this point and especially for our generation but man it's just insane how she went from being uh you know little a country girl plucking her guitar writing love songs to uh this persona this (laughs) larger than life person it's amazing
1: totally and also you, you really i think it's really instructive to reflect on how reputation went at the time in 2017 where it was quite polarizing quite maligned in some corners and Is getting a bit of a critical reevaluation in the time since but the way she bounced back from that and a lot of the the feuds with the Kardashians and Kanye of course and and Scooter and Scott Porchetta, like there's been so many things going on in that Taylor Swift orbit and yet the music has remained uh, definitely I think more engaging and interesting as she's gone down multiple roads since Reputation and Yeah, I mean, obviously, 10 albums in, she's nowhere near the end of the road, so, I mean, while she's in her mid-30s, like, there's no way to really project anything else on her, except uh, she wisely waited to release Midnight's until the Grammy cycle had turned over, so she's not in that Beyonce-Adele fight. She's in the following year, 2024 Grammys, where she will almost assuredly (laughs) uh, win Album of the Year. Yeah. And
0: she you know, you talked about all those feuds or controversies. She's always on the right side of it. Like she pretty sure. much always wins. Pretty crazy. Uh happy for Taylor, happy for us. Check out our Nostalgia Best of twenty twenty-two playlist on Spotify. Move on to Decision to Leave. A uh movie I was not able to make it to. But Dave, putting in that work to bring you all the content you need and deserve. Dave, tell me about this movie. Was it good?
1: Yeah, so I like Decision to Leave. It was not what I expected, but very notable movie for several reasons. This is the new film from Park Chan-Wook, his first film since The Handmaiden in 2016. Of course, since then we saw him create and direct every episode of Little Drummer Girl, the BBC and AMC spy thriller Lacare series with Florence Pugh, which we liked quite a bit back in 2018. So still, it's been a fair amount of time for Park chan wook who's probably most well-known for Old Boy, along with The Handmaiden. You know, just one of the signature South Korean filmmakers of the last 30 years. And new film from him. Very exciting. This premiered at Cannes. He won Best Director there. This is officially the South Korean Best International Feature Film submission at the Oscars this year. I feel like a nomination at the very least is quite safe at this point. And yeah it's uh I think it's it's a strong film that is quite challenging in a good way. It's a very engaging movie, but also very intelligent in how it I think asks a lot of the audience. and you know, it, on its surface, like the log line, like the pitch, the setup to the movie comes across as quite simple, where we're really just sending around this uh detective character who starts to get this fascination infatuation. With a, a widow who happens to be a prime suspect in a uh, murder slash uh, death case. This is set in like the Busan area, and you think it's set up as this like crime thriller, who done it movie, but it doesn't really go down that road at all. It really actually becomes more about these characters with this like budding relationship and how that begins to become consummated as the detective played by uh Park Hale, he's like very uh uninterested in trying to solve the crime and find out if this suspect he has particular interest in is really uh at the hands of the crime and, and there are other crimes that will follow later in the movie that really flip things on his head. And it just becomes this, I think this quite layered uh narrative about a really unique, like, romance. And the reason I think it's challenging is that that narrative gets quite layered, and there have been a lot of, like, Hitchcock comparisons specifically to Vertigo. And, you know, the way the movie builds up to this, I think, really emotional climax, takes a, it takes a while to get there, and I think you really have to just kind of ride with these characters and really like be in that like relationship which is quite complicated and and not easy to read or predict what's going to happen and along the way like as you probably imagine the filmmaking flourishes are incredibly impressive there's these really cool scenes early on where the detective is thinking or watching uh the widow and he almost like places himself in the scene or, like, thinks back in the past of, like, something that he learned and puts himself in the scene. So you see them both in camera together, even though they're not actually interacting. Like, he's, like, almost like Batman, like, mm-hmm. in, walking through a holograph, hologram of a crime scene. Like, really cool uh, visual touch. There's some really cool, like, in camera, like, pan out, like, zooms on, like, faces and stuff. Uh Yeah, like I said, complicated. Challenging narrative, but like it's a really like kind of like gorgeous build that I think if you're able to like stick with the movie and like engage with these multi layered plots and really process that dialogue because it's a mo- it's a movie that really communicates everything through just tons of dialogue. If you're able to stick with that, I think it does have a rewarding end as a kind of like atypical like romance thriller type movie. So I would recommend it. uh you know, It's getting limited release uh, right now. It'll end up on movie. Eventually, which you can access via Amazon when it eventually gets there. So, definitely check it out. It'll probably get Oscar nominated in Best International Feature Film. Yeah, definitely. Uh, unlike anything I had seen in quite some time. Definitely a cool movie.
0: Sounds really inventive, and uh, I think even that alone makes it worthy of checking out. So
1: I can't wait to see it.
0: Um, let's keep it moving though, and something that sounds a little bit <laughs> more lighthearted: Ticket to Paradise. Uh, The George Clooney and Julia Roberts reunion. I know you're clamoring for it, Dave.
1: You know, shoot me, but I do love some star power. And it's hard to beat Clooney and Roberts, two of the absolute megastars of recent times in Hollywood. And yeah, honestly, it was pretty great to just be hanging out with them in uh, Bali.
0: Yeah, you know, overall, I I felt like this movie was was enjoyable. Uh, It's not a movie that will be on uh my top 10 list maybe probably not my top 20 list uh but you know maybe top 30 given how this this year we were just talking last week we haven't seen as many movies um yeah it was just fun kind of being with them and Clooney and roberts have such a nice like uh rapport between them you know obviously we've seen them in quite a few movies probably most notably would be uh the oceans movies where they play each other's paramours and that as well oh, yeah but um yeah, I think overall I found myself being like, this was fine. You know, it was just fun to be with them. I didn't really find it to be like a great rom com. I did like how the ending uh wasn't what you would usually expect for a rom com centered around two people. Uh but yeah, I think there's a lot to like. What what did you like about it?
1: Yeah, so I think actually it is a pretty successful rom com. Maybe that's per the lowered standard of recent times for the romantic comedy as a film genre. You know, we are having a, a bit of a renaissance streaming has kind of helped that in a sense. But I think it just kind of elevated by the presence of Clooney and Roberts, as well as Caitlin Deaver, who's really great, of hmm. course, as well, playing their her, uh, their daughter character. Yes. And I think the movie is effective at communicating those emotional beats on the daughter side of things, while actually making you like earn the obvious anticipated reconciliation as as in all rom-coms from the Clooney and roberts characters themselves where it's a movie that you're obviously going to see the parents because of who's playing them but it doesn't actually really short shrift the daughter either and yeah i mean there's nothing to really surprise you i guess but i I think it's just it's just kind of fun to be with and i think Clooney and roberts are quite good at the dialogue and have that good chemistry due to having many roles together before, not just the oceans movies. And yeah, like just in the beginning, having them just always trying to get the last word in on each other. I think they're both just really crushing it. Like this is the best Clooney's been in quite some time. I have to feel like he hasn't acted as much as we would like in recent times, but I mean, this just felt like the classic uh, Clooney charm to me.
0: Totally. And I
1: mean, so much lower stakes
0: than a lot of the other stuff he'd, he's done
1: um
0: right. which I, I think allows him just to be silly and funny and charming um and I, I i agree i think he was great you know julia roberts in a lot of sense like kind of has to play the straight man to him which i think doesn't really allow her to like be herself fully in this but i still think she's pretty great and especially when when she's talking with um man who is she she's, she's talking with like was it a friend or something about like uh him and and paul and and all of it i feel like there was like a i can't remember exactly the scene but when she was like was it it her
1: boyfriend the pilot uh flight attendant
0: no so paul is the boyfriend maybe it was like someone who works at the resort they were staying at or the hotel Mm -hmm. or something but there's like uh, there's a scene i'm trying to remember exactly but she was like talking to somebody about her like conflict with it and i thought that i thought she's pretty good with that um and i really kind of going back to like the the twist at the end how you know, they, they, they share a kiss and then they both just start laughing at each other and are like, no, 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 this is this is not it. Like, I just really loved that because it's it, it was just not what I expected at all. And I, it felt like so true to to the situation, you know, that like yeah. you could see a situation like this bringing these people together. But then being like, fuck that, like, no, right. we're not feeling Re- for a reason. I, I really appreciate that. Really
1: setting it up like nicely too, where you find out that. Clooney owns the property by their 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 lake shared lake memory, and he has never sold it. And like they they really set you up, but then you're right; it do, it doesn't go that way. And then yeah. I I love how at the end they both still jump off the boat though, and you get the freeze frame, very throwback feeling as a way to end a movie with a frame like that. Yep. um, I enjoyed Billy Lord's presence just as Caitlyn Deaver's friend. She's just kind of doing Billy Lord things, in terms of her comedic uh, acting, where she's just kind of being like a uh, like an airhead type, but mm-hmm. she's pretty good at it. Uh, yeah. How did you like the uh, like the beer pong scene where they're like doing beer pong with like some like local moonshine whiskey type thing? I thought that was like really funny, even if it was not actually a credible form of the drinking game beer pong.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree. I was like, oh, this isn't really how it's played, but I still thought it was pretty fun. Um, yeah, th- I mean, th- th- there's some fun moments. I also like how. Um, They kind of bring in that like the cultural aspects of the people from bali and like kind of i think that that felt pretty true i mean i don't really know all those so maybe it's not but it felt like they were at least trying to be respectful of of the area that they were paying homage to so yeah overall i I think the scene that probably stands out most just in terms of comedy is like the airplane scene where you know like paul the boyfriend is flying and they have the woman between them who's like so ridiculous i also love when they get off the plane after they hit all that turbulence how she's the one like cussing paul out i thought that was pretty funny Mm -hmm. um it's definitely some like some fun scenes you know just kind of looking at like the critical reception to this and a little bit by critics but it seems like people that go to see this really enjoyed it it has an a minus cinema score Mm -hmm. uh, which is pretty good and i think that probably speaks to the fact that You get these two, uh, George Clooney and Julie Roberts, and there's like a real, I think, uh, niche of of an audience of older women, you know, probably somewhere in like mid 30s to like 50s who really don't have movies made for them much anymore. So I wonder if we're going to see a little bit more of this. It came in second to Black Adam this weekend. So not that there was really anything else going up Mm -hmm. against Black Adam. So I wonder if maybe there's a hope that we'll see some more of these made in the future.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think the Ticket to Paradise box office, which is already quite robust overseas, where it released uh, like over the past month already, you would see a lot of older audiences showing up in the first weekend to see this movie. So I would expect pretty strong legs for Ticket to Paradise, which is obviously no guarantee with this type of film mm-hmm. at the theater anymore. You know, the, the Lost City was a pretty successful film earlier this year with Sandra Bullock and Chang Tatum, kind of a similar thing, although that leaned a little bit more into the action side of things. This though, yeah, I, I think it's just a really good example of like top tier star power can still work and be sold if you do it correctly. Um one one note I was kind of thinking of, wouldn't it be fun if like Caitlyn Deaver's character, the daughter, was actually played by Emma Roberts, the niece yeah. of Julia Roberts. I don't know if Emma Roberts can quite play twenty two anymore; she's in her early thirties. But I-, I just thought that would 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 have been funny to ha- finally have them like be related in a movie.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. It would have been fun, but may- maybe someday, maybe someday, a lot of time for both of them. But let's uh, let's move on to the uh, the shift of power in the TC universe hierarchy. The power- The hierarchy has shifted, and uh, man, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Black Adam, we finally got it, Dave. I know since they have been making superhero movies, you've been saying, give me a Black Adam movie, just give it to me,
1: right? (laughs) Totally, and so has The Rock for that matter. He's like, we're making a Black Adam movie, and Shazam will not be in it. He's been saying this for years, and he's going to make this happen, and well, he did make it happen, and we got Black Adam. The latest entry in the DC Extended Universe. And yeah, I don't even have like a good joke to make. it. It's just quite a baffling disappointment. And yeah. it's actually hilarious that The Rock hyped this up as something that took so long to make. A lot of people have been riffing that it would have been better if he said we just crap this out in an afternoon because then it would be more believable.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, there's a lot of things I just really didn't enjoy about this, but I think it starts with The Rock, honestly, because I, while he is playing this man out of time, coming from you know ancient Egyptian time, bestowed with these powers of the gods, Kandak, which uh, you know, I guess as being someone that hasn't really read a lot of the like Shazam, uh, lore, like it's supposed to be Egyptian guys that give him this power, but like they switched it right like yeah, they switched
1: know. it to seemingly more middle eastern you know west asian in a fictional land called conduct. definitely reads as more of like a you know afghanistan type uh geography when when we're there um i believe that change had happened before in the comics so it's not out of nowhere but um i think that actually kind of connects to one of the disappointing elements about black adam is Early on, they kind of nod to some cultural commentary with the film, where Kandak in the present day is more or less occupied by these foreign invaders, inter gang. You know, kind of a a nod, a play to a uh, American and Western foreign policy in the Middle East, and you even have it expressed by some of the Kandak characters about how they're these you know invader types and. Black Adam coming out of nowhere. Actually, that's our hero. Finally, someone defending us, you know? Mm -hmm. And one of the most poignant moments, I feel like, where they basically tell the Justice Society to fuck off because you never cared before. Mm -hmm. It would have been great if the movie was a bit more intelligent in handling that and and continuing that train of thought with conduct throughout, but it's ultimately just dropped. And there's just a lot of baffling decisions that happen throughout the course of... The film Black Adam, and yeah, it it it's ultimately just half baked all over the place. And I think you're right about criticizing The Rock because it really kind of feels like how The Rock's film filmography has gone the past couple years, where he can't take any L's as a character anymore. He's 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 like he's become what he hates. He's Vin Diesel, you know. He 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 will not like have his skin be scratched. But they also in he also won't be a bad guy. Black Adam is a straight up villain in the comics. And from the jump, when as soon as the rock got attached to this years and years ago, he said that they were gonna make him more of an anti-hero. Okay, fine, whatever. You're gonna make a Black Adam solo movie, you know, separate him from Shazam in the beginning. Cool, whatever. I can see it. But he's not a fucking anti-hero at any stretch of this movie. And it's so annoying that this film continues to tell us how he's so bad. Because he's never bad. He's only ever killing bad guys. The first scene we see, Teth Adam, Black Adam, he kills only the bad guys and makes a point of decision to not kill the one woman in the room who he just knows is good. Like, he's never a bad guy in any stretch of the imagination. He only kills bad people. And it's just really incongruous from the way the DCU had previously communicated heroes killing people and Batman vs. Superman. We don't have to go down that road, man. It's just, it's just annoying some of these choices that were made in this movie.
0: <laughs> I really loved the part at the end where they're like, "He's he's the type of hero you need because he'll do what the real heroes can't." It's like, well, I mean, what? Like, like, what are you even talking about with that? Like the fact that he'll like <laughs> rip a guy in half, but like he ripped like the the big bad villain in half. Like that was like who he ripped in half. Like it's not like he's like going around just like murkin' dudes. Like he's like. He's making judgments based on if they're hurting people. I don't know. It was very strange. Um, I, You know, kind of going back to what you're talking about, with, like them not really committing to the cultural commentary. I think even starting with like having this be a story where it's so tied to a cultural area and then having, uh, you know, American, like basically like G.I. Joe playing this guy is like very like strange True. and just kind of like fell off putting to begin with.
1: The Rock is not um, Asian.
0: No, not Asian at all. No. And yeah. <laughs> you know the the only scenes where you like you flash back to what actually happened and how he got these powers they have someone dubbing over and speaking uh, I i'm not sure if it was egyptian or some other um dialect but it's like okay so you needed someone who could do this and you just got the rock and he gives a very one-note performance he is just not a good actor at this stage of his career un- unfortunately i don't know if he ever was not a- Say
1: it, (laughs) you know. Well, he, he, I I think he has been good at times. I think he can act, but he doesn't allow himself to do his strengths with this role. The Rock is a charmer, yeah. And like the best moments of his performance in Black Adam, the film, are when like The Rock kind of like side eyes another character and like makes a smirk because you're like, ah, there he is, there's the Dwayne I know, but like that's they don't want this character to be that, so. It's just kind of the rock, like stone face the entire time, you know, barely speaking. And maybe you may, this movie was somehow something else and the rocks in it less, but then that just wouldn't make sense as like being pitched and sold as a Black Adam movie. So there's just a lot of like ill-conceived components that are in the Black Adam film. Chief among them, of course, would be the Justice Society of America. Which yeah. was obviously hyped up via casting, trailers, and a big aspect of this film. These other super-powered characters. We don't have Shazam in this movie, God forbid. But we have these other people. And isn't it hilarious, too, that Amanda Waller is the one who calls these in? Doesn't call the Suicide Squad in, suicide squad in to take out this really bad guy we have to rein in. No, they call in the Justice League B team. Because yeah. that's how it's that's how it's presented in this movie. Even if the Justice Society like predates them in comic history, like mm-hmm. it's presented as the B Squad. Yeah, you know, Hawkman, the, the, k- the up and coming, k- and like the almost retired, basically, and like right. And they don't do any work to l- l- let you learn about the <laughs> Hawkman Doctor Fate relationship, which is established to be this old thing. You even had Henry Winkler cast as the OG Atom Smasher, no Centenea picking up the helm, but they don't they don't. They don't tie you into any like history with any of these characters. And the, you know, I actually think there's some decent moments somewhere in there with, with with these performances of of these characters, but like the movie just doesn't give you any time or space to feel anything with any of that. And yeah. before we know it, we're watching their ill-defined mission to rein in Black Adam for hashtag reasons, you know? <laughs>
0: I know. I I I don't really know what he was doing. I I did love the uh the Amanda Waller, uh, Black Adam, like conversation in, in the post credits. I I just <laughs> love that. I don't even know where he was supposed to be, Black Adam, and like how this like vision of like Amanda Waller came up. But Good it was point. just really funny shout uh, out
1: viola d man she's getting paid by warner brother she don't give a shit
0: yeah for real I, I love it i, I love the, the shamelessness she's like fuck it i'll take the check whatever i have to show up for five minutes and get fucking huge bank deposit anyways i agree with you on the the stuff with the uh the justice squad or what are they called? society justice society of america jsa um yeah the aldous hodges character what <laughs> like uh, at least like at least with um what dr fate uh, yeah or you you get a lot of time with Brosnan, especially in the end when like he's like deciding to like do the uh the switch and bait with uh or the bait and switch where it's like oh no i'm actually gonna be the one to sacrifice myself there was no way Brosnan was coming back for this so like it felt like pretty yeah. clear this was gonna happen
1: mm-hmm. but
0: um I-, I do feel like he did a lot with what he what he had. Aldis Hodge is tough because he's kind of put into the um the Joel Kinnaman role, uh, Colonel Flag. Flag, Colonel mm-hmm. Rick Flag. Um, he's kind of put in that role where he's supposed to just be like the the good leader who cares about the team and is doing the right. right thing. But like, you don't really know like where this comes from or like like you said, the relationship. And he's just kind of like a big brother to like Noah Centennial and Sarah Shahi, but like. They just get, like, very little moments. And, like you said, you don't really know why they're coming in. They just start, like, fucking shit up. Like, <laughs> destroying the city. Um, didn't really make any sense to me. And that's like, it, you know, it, I think you can kind of tell that they aren't the bad guys. You can tell Black Adam isn't the, the bad guy. And so you get Hmm. fourths force of the movie through and you're like okay well we, we
1: need a bad guy yeah
0: where's the bad guy and of course we go back to where we started in the beginning the one descendant of uh whatever his name is um sabak yeah sabak comes back ishmael gregor and it's like okay <laughs> like this guy's just kind of coming out of the blue and he's the bad guy now i don't know yeah well and then we then, got and some, then some then zombies rising
1: podcast. up we gotta have the people fight them for a and little it, bit and oh, then it doesn't brother. even look
0: good like it's no. like back to being like crappy so CGI if... half the time from DC, and it's like,
1: yep. What, what But was like all that's this that's what makes it, it so ill conceived. It's like, f- fuck, this villain shouldn't have been in there at all. You should have just made Black Adam be better, and then you you want to make him into an antihero by the end of the movie? Sure, that that probably would have worked way better. We didn't need Sabak at all. You know, yep. it's just because it, it it's just such a familiar, weak third act villain that we are we know so well from past poor efforts like black adam you know and yeah i mean i, I feel bad for Alice hodge cuz he's an actor i like quite a bit i think he's yeah. really kind of come into his career recently with more and high more and more high profile roles and he probably will be back you know as a member hawkman is a member of the justice league too so we'll probably uh, see he, him
0: he gets promoted
1: yeah i mean like you know like the justice league cartoon hawkman yeah. was there a lot so i'm sure he's you know in the modern I- iterations, he's pretty common. Probably see him around. Um, you know, like no- Noah Centineo and uh Quintessa uh, Swindell as Cyclone and uh, Adam Smasher. You know, they really get to do absolutely nothing in this movie, but like the brief moments they do get, they have like decent chemistry. So they kind of like bat their eyelashes at each other. I thought it was pretty good. And Noah, yeah, is it is it a straight up rip off of Tom Holland's Peter Parker? Totally. <laughs> but like, I actually thought it was pretty good. Like he was actually yeah. like, kind of charming as like the precocious new guy, you know.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah, it, th- and the Justice Society too. Like it just it comes across as so ill conceived from the very jump. All the reason we've said, and then Aldous Hodge, Hawkman, he states his mission statement that the JSA is there to like promote what was it, international stability. Was mm-hmm. the phrase he global used? Stability. Like, global stability. Global stability. He's like, man, what a What a lackluster mission statement for you guys. (laughs) You know, Jesus Christ.
0: Yeah, go back (sighs) to the drawing board on that one. Um, You know, and we didn't really talk about it, but like I did mention um, Sarah Shahi and, uh, you know, the the kid that's running around. I forgot what his name is. Amar, played by uh, Bodhi Sabongwe or Sabongi. And uh, I just like, again, feel like that was just like, we have to have a kid. You know, we got to have uh, kind of a love interest, kind of, or at least like a, a good, like strong female character. And then a kid who is like supposed to be like, why the why Black Adam doesn't like turn bad or why he like, I, I don't even know, like he sees his son in him or something like that. He, the, the kid will, you know, unite the city. That's his superpower. It just felt like so. I I don't know. I I didn't really find much of it effective, and you know, I'm I'm kind of a sucker for those sorts of like storylines, and like you know, the the power doesn't have to be given power. Like you can find it within. Like I don't, I don't think they really pulled that off at all. I feel like it was kind of, uh, kind of just a blah, like big fart noise. Um, you know, you get like a, a quick Henry Winkler cameo, um. That's pretty much like the only other high-profile cameo until the after credits (laughs) where we get Henry Cavill called in by Amanda Waller. Because, man, uh, she's going to call on some favors with some out-of-this-world people to make sure Black Adam stays in line because he was really out of line in this movie. And then we have a little Henry Cavill rock face-off, Superman versus Black Adam, there at the end. What would you think about that?
1: Apparently... They shot it originally without Cavill, and then when they got the Cavill deal signed, Cavill shot this scene, obviously just his part, in England like a month ago. So, got in under the wire, but I I know anecdotally from some friends that despite the reception the Black Adam, hats off to The Rock, he got Cavill back, something that had been ambiguous and unsettled for honestly far too long when it comes to these high profile film franchises. Uh, it sounds like we will be getting a ostensible man of steel two in the near future, which is more than we could have said the past few years. I do like Cavill as Superman. I like Cavill in general. And I actually think man of steel is one of the stronger DC films of the last, you know, era. So yep. I-, I welcome it. Do I wanna see him square off with Black Adam? Not my First yeah. choice necessarily. But I feel like the Rock uh probably got that one in writing too. He will be in the mix.
0: I'm I'm sure of it. Uh I am I am happy to see Cavill back. I am happy to see um you know that we're gonna be getting just more Superman in this world and not having to like rebuild the character in some sense. Mm-hmm. Uh there's just not a lot of dc heroes at this point that we have a lot of good faith with where we know the character is definitely coming back i mean look at all the stuff with the flash right now and so i feel like dc kind of had to drop this bag or they were kind of going back to the start with this i mean aquaman who knows when we're getting that movie is that next year i guess uh
1: you know we, we know it's uh, we been do? filmed that's next but year <laughs> is it coming next year for sure yep
0: gotcha okay pull this so up. we know when we're getting aquaman but you know the the Flash seems like it's in limbo. The, then there's reports that they've already, uh, you know, written a second one for Ezra Miller. So,
1: right, that, yeah. So actually, 2023 will probably is going to be the most prolific DCEU year yet, as far as things stand. Shazam Two: Fury of the Gods was delayed out of competition with Avatar Two this December. It's coming out in March. Then the Flash movie is currently dated for June 2023. You know, with David Zaslav at the head, I feel like they're just going to release it just to make the money. You know, it just sounds like how, how they're operating at Warner Discovery these days. Also, we currently have Blue Beetle, dated for August 2023, which was converted to a theatrical film and kind of was able to be saved from the Batgirl fate. Of course, an HBO Max film canceled, written off rather than released at all. And then closing it out, Aquaman comes out Christmas next year. So, after that, you know, separate from this DC universe, of course, we know there's a Matt Reeves, patents and Batman sequel in the works. We know there's a Joker 2 coming out with Joaquin, Todd Phillips, and Lady Gaga. But after that, nothing seems concrete until perhaps whatever's next with Black Adam and whatever's next, Man of Steel, Superman. So, we, uh, m- might be waiting you know 2024 (laughs) sounds like it's just joker too
0: yeah i think kind of to circle back i think the idea that the best dc properties right now are not tied to any sort of like connected universe um is tough you know but aquaman certainly people love momoa in that role um i don't know what's gonna happen with miller and then you think about like all the batman stuff and where that's at in in the connect universe you're unsure
1: so well and it's so interesting because like as we know they've been trying to find their kevin feige figure in a certain sense and whether they can get someone to be as truly all seeing and all knowing the way feige has proven with marvel that's probably a little bit of a high bar but just to have someone who's like directly running this as we know walter hamada is on his way out any day now it felt like the Flash movie with the Flashpoint storyline was going to be that natural reset, you know, and Mm. it would allow you to bring back a Michael Keaton and a Ben Affleck Batman for fun, because we're going to reset, but, like, they don't have, like, the leadership or, like, the setup in place to do this reset, it feels like, right? Because if Wonder Woman 3 still happens, sounds like it will, that doesn't seem like it's serving a reset. Man of Steel 2, same thing, unless they really want to Find a way to communicate a hard reset, but still keep some of your actors. If you can pull that off, I say, go for it, you know? But in the meantime, I think it's just, you know, film the film. There have been DC movies I've liked quite a bit, and there's ones I haven't liked, and there's ones I've liked somewhat. You know, it's fine. Uh, It would just be really great if we, if that more of a coherent plan was uh, easy to see. But we've been saying that for a while now.
0: Anyways uh Black Adam not a movie I would recommend but if you like DC check it out I guess let's move on to something I definitely would recommend which is House of the Dragon season 1 wrapping up on HBO last night to pretty big returns 9.3 million tuning in for this pretty uh pretty good turnout for it
1: yeah. averaging about hair under 30 million per episode when you count you know all the replays and throughout the course of a week I believe that's pacing ahead of all but two Game of Thrones seasons average, you know, episode run. So biggest show on TV right now. I really didn't have any doubt the House of the Dragon would be a smash for HBO, but I'm still happy that it was. And I think season two will be even bigger once that does eventually come out. Maybe not till 2024, unfortunately. But yeah, monster hit, you know. Uh, in the face of strong competition, rings of power on Amazon and or on Disney Plus, not to mention just the wealth of choice we have in the world in general, House of the Dragon really uh struck through and became a zeitgeisty Sunday night show as tr- we expected as the first proper Game of Thrones follow up.
0: Absolutely, and I I think I I don't think this was a a perfect season of TV. You know I think there were some choices in terms of storytelling um that maybe could have been thought out a little bit more i think there's definitely some um some things that i, c- I think could have gone a little bit better but overall i was incredibly incredibly uh pleased with what we got this season and especially the last few episodes i think from the uh, eighth ninth and tenth episode were probably the strongest parts of the season all happening within a, a much shorter period of time which i think might speak to some of the larger structural issues with uh, the beginning of the show. And I, we, we talked about the premiere where, you know, you have these two young, young girls, Millie, uh,
1: Millie Haycock
0: nope. and
1: Millie Alcock and Emily oh, Carey is young yeah. Rhaenyra, young Alison. And there's other young actors as well. Like the guy who plays young Laenor, for example, but yeah, unlike game of Thrones, you have recasting happening mid season as large passages of time are communicated episode to episode as we truly advance through pieces of time in story. And I think that is a hard thing to communicate, because I think the alternative is a bit uh, unrealistic, which would be to spend more and more time over the course of, you know, these earlier years. But they clearly don't want to make a 10-season show. So you kind of got to keep it moving as best you can. And, you know, I thought Millie Alcock and Emily Carey were really great as young Rainiera and young Allison, and they do a really good job, I think, of setting that table and making that effectively prologue to that first season of House of the Dragon. They make it incredibly compelling and I think do a lot of the important work just set up the layered relationship that Allison and Rhaenyra have. But at the end of the day, you do kind of have to advance it. And I think thankfully, because the casting was so dynamite, like once uh Emmett RC comes in and of course Olivia Cook, who we knew is knew know was great, once they come in and just pick up the pieces from the young ones, the show just keeps rolling, you know? And yeah, it's been interesting to hear people of various levels in their thrones fandom like dissect and analyze like how they feel about a show that's really briskly moving through some early plot and you know i I don't know how much better it could have been done without just spending lots and lots of more time take taking your time but if that wasn't an option i guess what 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 could they have truly done differently what do you think because I do agree with some of that criticism where some of the characterization is a bit brisk or a bit thin mm-hmm. with some of the ancillary characters. You kind of have to be following those core characters and picking up some other stuff through brief pieces of dialogue to follow through. Like I understand it's a challenge for some, but I mean, do you have like a suggestion of how it could have been handled in like a meaning meaningful way in a different manner?
0: Yeah, you know, I it's it's hard to say, I think especially because I haven't read the books, but I think where I was feeling like we would miss things is how from, like, one episode to the next, there would be these feelings, like, I think it's, like, episode three or four, where it's, like, right after Alicent is named the Queen, and the next time we see Rhaenyra, she's kind of being, like, uh, put out to, to find a husband. And there's definitely <laughs> this, like, tension between them, but, like, still this, like, This longing and the sweetness for their friendship and i wish we could have just gotten even like little like scenes of them like still like having these nice moments or still like discussing their like care for other people i think also a lot of the stuff that happens with um with patty constantine as king vaserius you know it's it's major jumps of him like (laughs) just getting sicker and sicker although somehow like still hanging on like that that was like the most dead alive guy i've ever seen for like yep. three episodes just incredible incredible stuff from their makeup department um but yeah i don't know if there's a way to have done it better um but definitely i think it, it, i think because it jumped so much uh it almost feels like there there could have been a whole season which I like you said they didn't want to do of them just doing the younger ones and people would have loved it you know people <laughs> were even saying like uh the the two young ones, Emily Carey and Millie Alcock, they wanted them to just remain the characters throughout. And it's like obviously you can't do that when this these are about adults, but it's right. uh pretty impressive that they gave that good of a performance. And then you jump forward and Emma Darcy and Olivia Cook are completely beloved as well by the fan base. Like yeah. it's they they just nailed the casting in all of this.
1: Really, and they both really feel like the character. Like, that's the young one, yeah. that's the adult one. Like, they they both, bo- both versions of both characters were great. And, yeah, and I think something that, like, I think people just might have to accept over time is that, like, we are going to slow down with the passage of time from this point out. They wanted House of the Dragon to be palace intrigue with even more Game of Thrones spectacle because that is what this story in the lore supports that's why it was such an intelligent and smart choice for a first adaptation because there's so many familiar aspects to it but they can bring in late period game of thrones budgets and immediately wow you with that and as we dive into the dance of dragons as damon outlined in the season one finale there are third well now 12 dragons on the board mm-hmm. shit's about to get hot and maybe some people will be like yeah but I don't have any relationship with Aegon, the new king. okay, fine. I, well, that, I guess then that, that, that's disappointing to hear, but for me, I found it all just, like so credible and so so amazing to follow. maybe that's just because I'm just invested in the story, like for me, like I wasn't like longing for a character to root for. It's like, man, I'm rooting for the Game of Thrones, man. Like <laughs> I already know what these stakes are. That's why this is the prequel. And the first choice is an adaptation because we know what the stakes are. They are fighting for the throne. This is family on family. We know all this shit. We will get attached to people over time. I wasn't, like, when some people were, like, telling, like, saying how they, like, had no attachment to Rhaenyra, I was just, like, so shocked by that. Mm. I, I, I thought, and, and that's what's cool about this show and and this group of characters is a lot more gray found in here, right? Yes. There are a lot of, you know, perhaps you can call back to people, right? Like Allison, I think has been made a bit less villainous than she is on the page, but still can remind you of Cersei in terms of her love of her family and her, you know, her children. And Damon certainly has a lot of uh, uh, ups and downs to his character, right? Familiar, like, a, like he's like a Jamie Lannister type. Like we we know what what we're supposed to feel. I think about some of these characters, and now just like seeing, seeing it get to it, you know. Like I don't know about you, but like once we got to our final timeline here, and we see like adult Amond, fucking menacing with his one eye. Oh yeah, perfect. You know, I get it. And they, I think they actually, with very economically, because there's only so much time as they move through plot. But like the way they set up Amond as like the more driven, focused brother, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and the way the way he handles losing his eye in uh the way he did as a youth right but being like yeah but i got Vagar now so good trade like the yeah. way he was able to say that as a teenager like i think they've, they've done a really good job of communicating some of that stuff are are we as attached to um rainier as uh other kids you know with harwin strong jace and uh, uh luke not as much we haven't had as much time with them or or their betrothed you know Damon's valerian kids no right we haven't spent as much time with them yet but I think that like kind of central uh, force that is the greens versus uh, the Targaryens, you know, to me, that's been enough as like kind of our grounding, like sides of the two sides of the conflict to drive everything forward. And season two, you would think would just slow down with that time. And there'd be less of that like forward pushing of plot and then you'd really stick with the characters that we largely know. And obviously, there'll be allies, there'll be lots of other houses coming into the fray, but we know all the major players, and this was, I think, a effective setup.
0: Yeah, I, I thought all those characters were fantastic. Eamon's so, like you said, so menacing, and uh, the the guy playing him, I wanted to find his name, and I uh, was having a hard time looking at my notes, uh, I thought it was just fantastic. And like you said, I, I think some of the best episodes are the ones where like, I, I don't want to say the least happens, but it's like the uh it's like more bottled up, right? Where it's like, you're mm-hmm. focusing on like one event. So like when Eamon loses his eye, right? You have the, now they see you for who you truly are moment between Rhaenyra and Alicent. Amazing. And that showdown is just incredible. Like it- it's just so intense. And you see not only how Viserys... As a, as a leader and as a, a king but mm-hmm. you see like the dynamic between these two friends these foes politically it's like so intense and so well constructed um and yeah that the way that uh, emma darcy delivers that line is just right. incredible
1: also like the fact that that scene hit so well and yet like olivia cook running with the dagger was in the trailer yeah it didn't spoil anything it still was an amazing moment that still landed
0: Mm-hmm. incredible and then you, obviously like i said you get the last few episodes starting with episode eight you get the kind of coming back together the long walk which might have been like that that whole throne throne room scene is incredible oh, yeah. but like the long walk is so moving you know Damon, who's like this brutal character but someone you also root for i think matt smith plays him very well yeah, portrays a very complex and like yes wounded person um is is really impressive but then you get an amazing moment from him where apparently this was wasn't in the script but the when the crown falls off Sirius's head uh Damon puts it on him and that wasn't written Matt mm. Smith just did that which is really cool um and then him cutting the you know the the head off the guy it's just yeah. like what
1: the a sea moment. snake's brother amazing uh,
0: amazing stuff you can have your tongue <laughs> yep, and, that, and but th- th- then you get the showdown between the kids, but also like the Alicent and Rhaenyra coming back together, and then obviously shit goes down where you, you get <sighs> the, the vision shared to the wrong person.
1: Fucking Viserys really going out, going out like the ineffectual leader he was at the very they last moment and actually to get too. one more in
0: and he then he just fucked it up uh but then yeah seeing the the green side of things and then the red side of things in the last two episodes i thought those both those episodes were incredible i really liked it during in the the ninth episode where you see the high towers making a play for the throne um Mm -hmm. and and taking the throne how like you're in the city and you're kind of learning a little bit more about like the inner workings i wish we'd actually seen a little bit more of that you know because there's like the scene where like the brothel woman is like well i'll tell you where he is if you work in this political agenda to stop like making kids fight each other and i was like
1: yeah this is really
0: cool actually like i wish we totally. kind of got a little bit more of this but yeah. there's not a lot of room for that in the dance of dragons you you would
1: have wanted to go on more uh drunken escapades in flea bottom with uh aegon i don't want to be king uh Dargarian I don't know about
0: Aegon per se, but I would have liked to have seen, like, how these people of the city are getting there, like, using the power that they have, the information that they have, to like, sway some political leanings. I think there's something there for right. a show in the future.
1: I think there's definitely more room along those lines for, like, the Misaria Mas- side of things. You know, Sonia Mizuno had a tough accent a few episodes back. Not yeah. not Not her best, for sure. But that's always, I think, been a strength of Game of Thrones, which was people not in power and how they interface with the world. And that's why Westeros and Song of Ice and Fire has always been so rich is because it feels so real. And there's so many different people and the approximation of people uh, from and and to power is what, what is ultimately so compelling. And that is probably something that got the short shrift the most as house of the dragon season one had to advance through so much time and so much plot, you know, Mm -hmm. but you know, it still like, felt like even if, even if you view this season as the highlight reel, like there's some fucking amazing ass highlights, man. I don't know how you can't be entertained, (laughs) you know, Patty Constantine and Jenna throughout the season is really great as Viserys and has to do a lot as his character really transforms literally and is, he has to change the way he's acting in the role, obviously. And I think the show does a good job of communicating what kind of leader he was and what kind of man he was, where he was not the despot like Maggie the Cruel. And he ruled over a time of peace, but mm-hmm. he wasn't a good king for other reasons. And they they show you and they do that work to communicate that. And you see yeah. it on both sides. You see it on the green side of things. You see it on the red side of things with Damon's view of things, you know. Uh, yeah the man there's just so much to like I think really all the casting was uh, tremendous even like we get the revelation about Laris and how uh, Allison was uh, doing him a favor to get information like I thought that is even set up in a really uh, effective way I it's a huge shock when you see the stuff with the feet but like uh, and it's a big moment online but like I just think like they did a really a lot of work to kind of build up that Lair's character and that Lairs Allison relationship, right conversely like early on, you're like pretty invested with Sir Kristen Cole with young mm-hmm. Rainera and then they really show you what kind of thug he is and how he's yeah. just a, a just a, a goon. goon he's a goon and, and and that's how he is on the page and I mean I think he's already rapidly risen up the rankings of most low Thrones character by many and I think that's great. Fabian Franco did a really good job yeah he
0: he did a a fantastic job in like seeing all of the like scenes where he's just like a complete piece of shit but he's like so brooding you know he's similar to like the mountain i guess or something like that right where Mm -hmm. it's just like this big goon but like also quite
1: misogynistic now towards right here
0: (laughs) just terrible um you know i i think uh I agree. I think for the limited time they had all the characters, they did a really good job of characterizing it. And you still get some awesome set pieces, man. I mean, like, I, I thought the end of episode nine, where Renice, who oh, is yeah. maybe like the most underrated character of the season, and her presence, I feel like is uh, so. Crushes it at the end, too, so when she crucial. gets
1: some more scenes.
0: Yeah. So the last two episodes, she's fantastic, um, where, you know, Renice on, on her dragon bursts up could have just fucking flamed all the high towers right there and just one and
1: done show one season i
0: know know. um but then i i actually felt like they made a pretty good like pitch as to why she didn't when she Mm -hmm. talks to reneros like it wasn't my war to start like you know this is really you i i was like okay like fair enough um And then, yeah, in the final episode, the way that she was talking with the sea snake and just kind of like being like, she's the only one that's not fucking going into battle immediately. Like, I think she's actually a good leader. I was like, yeah, making some good points here. You know, I thought all that stuff was really effective. Um, And also, I really liked the conversation between her and her husband about, like, what is the point of doing all this? Like, what are they actually like fighting for and um, how their goals weren't really aligned? I thought that was really interesting. And, you know, we haven't really Talked about just some of the other cool moments, but you get the the Damon scenes where he like goes and kills the uh, the, 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 crab. Crab the crab feeder. Crab uh, feeder, you know. You get him singing to the the dragon. You get him just kind of coming into the mm-hmm. the feast and just stealing the show and making everybody uncomfortable. Crown it's all thorns, good stuff. Yeah, yeah, totally all really good stuff.
1: Let's not forget we got Thrones at its most Thronesiest. Straight up incest. It's back, baby. And People we cool love it. To, we are rooting for it. And it's so funny that they have three sets of kids. It's so great. You of course have Rainier's kids with with Lenor, quote unquote. And then you have Damon's kids, Valerian kids. And then they actually have their kids together. Shout out the that that mixed family.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh yeah, I mean I think it's all really fun. And you know, I think if you're really like not liking this show you just got a big old dump in your pants like you really just don't <laughs> want to like it is what i, I
1: yeah try. i mean for me it, there's just so much familiarity to it it's like y- you liked it last time right like mm-hmm. i understand maybe it's not completely fulfilling on the writing side of things for you just yet i i'd say they've earned uh, some goodwill that, that's yeah. how i feel about it uh, and the name we were looking for was uh ewan mitchell is the one yes. who plays uh old uh, uh adult Aemond Targaryen and we should actually talk how did you feel about uh, the death of Luke uh, Luke at the hands of Vagar and Aemond? Uh I don't know about you but like when I saw that like I think they did a really good job of showing how Luke was still quite young throughout the later half of this season and they really I think set it up well that things could have gone wrong and sure enough we I don't know about you, but as soon as I saw him like kinda like flying in as a storm's coming in, the landed Storm set. I'm like, Oh, this is not gonna go well. Then, oh of course, yeah, well. You you immediately realize Eamon's already there and it's like, Yeah, this he, he's toast. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah. The when you see Vagar like screaming after he like hops off of Arax, you're like, "Oh fuck, this is not good." It felt like felt Jurassic Parky almost, you know, with like the right. rain coming down, like, and the way that they shot that like chase at the end, so thrilling. Right. Um. And oh. you, go
1: ahead. Also, I think really intelligently and wisely because we don't really know this yet. The the average Thrones viewer hasn't really had this communicated yet, but the dragons. Or we just kind of guide them, those they're of beasts. us who are lucky enough to ride them. They are still nuclear bombs, so there's not con- you're not without consequences by using dragons as a weapon of war. And you saw that firsthand, where the way this show wants to communicate it, anyway. Whether I don't believe this is as clear on the page, but it seemed like the dragons both both disobeyed their riders, and thus that's why. The two little ones got got. Uh, they,
0: they both screamed at their dragon, yep. respectively, you know, serve me. Yeah. And Amon, like, actually terrified. I don't know why I said his name like that. Amon, like, Amon. Yeah. <laughs> uh, look, looked absolutely terrified after, you know, Vagar fucks him up. So, oh or sh- she fucks him up, I should yeah. say.
1: What a chomp, man, too. Yo. Brutal.
0: i I, honestly that was a gutting scene i felt so sad for luke i i knew when he was just kind of sitting up there i was like oh dude you gotta keep moving you gotta keep going (laughs) yeah yeah but definitely sets up a very exciting next season that look on uh emma darcy's face it's my background on youtube check it out but fucking brilliant
1: totally yeah man um one thing i would love more if i would love more lanor i actually really like lanor and how they kind of set up the relationship, the arrangement that uh, him and Rhaenyra have. Mm-hmm. And I would have loved more time with him. You know, they kept him alive uh, on this mm-hmm. show, which is a departure from the page. So I don't know if they're going to bring him back or not, but I, I would have liked more time with Leonard just because I think that there was a lot more there. Even Harwin Strong. We barely got to know him before Laris kills him, you know, but yeah, I, I also liked him.
0: Yeah, I agree, I agree with all of it. This is a great show. We should wrap up there for this week. What do we got for next week, Dave?
1: Yeah, so I think most notably, just as one HBO banger ends, another begins. And that would, of course, be the White Lotus Season 2. Very exciting. We uh, also have a Smino album coming out, Banshees of Shear in theaters, All Quiet on the Western Front remake on Netflix. Uh, and then Star Wars has a new animated show out tomorrow, Tales of the Jedi, which is kind of like a Clone Wars Prequel spin-off series, basically like bonus material more fun for Clone Wars fans. So there's some good stuff coming up, and we know the movies are gonna really start picking up week by week. So plenty of good stuff coming.
0: Youtube.com slash go to Twitter at pod follow the link tree, follow the podcast anywhere you want to there. We'll catch you next week.